When I was in the ninth grade, if I'd have stood in front of a crowd this size and done anything, uh, Hillary does a great job. Students, thanks for starting us off and leading us in worship tonight. Thank you. <clears throat> I want us to talk in this message about impacting a pagan culture. In 1963, 65% of Americans believe the Bible was literally true. Today, that is less than 30%. By the time these students behind me are adults and married, it will probably be less than 20% of Americans believe that the Bible is literally true. The day of moral absolutes are gone unless there's a sweeping revival. We have moved from moral absolutes to relative thinking in about 60 years. At this rate, just imagine where we will be 60 years from now, should the Lord tarry. And yet, I find a lot of similarities between Acts 17 and America in 2004. Because in many ways, Acts 17 is a picture of a postmodern culture, the culture that we live in today. Someone asked John Maxwell in a meeting one time, and I had a friend who was in that meeting, there were about 30 pastors in it, what will the world be like and what will the church have to do to reach the culture in the third millennium, in the 21st century. And John told them what they needed to do and what the culture would be like. And some of the pastors balked at it and said, we don't like that. And I mean, they just got offended by what John said. And John said, look, I'm not telling you I like it. I'm telling you that's the way it is and the way it's going to be. And we better learn as a church how to address the culture as it is, not as we want it to be. Because it's never going to be like we want it to be until we realize what it is. And so I want us to look at Acts 17 because there's some background here uh, with a group of people that had no knowledge of Scripture. They had no understanding of biblical truth. And so Paul had to find some starting points with them. And the first point is that Paul starts a riot. <laughs> There's a, there's a preacher that'll win a popularity contest. I mean, he just, there's a riot that starts in verses 1 through 9. At verses 1 through 9, Paul's in Thessalonica. Look at verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. He went to the synagogues. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, he's talking to Jews right here. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And so Paul started with the Scriptures. He made his presence felt by standing on the authority of the Word. He reasoned with him. That word reason means to make plain or to state clearly. He didn't mumble. He didn't say, I think or I feel. What Paul was saying is emphatically, thoroughly, this is truth. He's revealing theology and the completion of theology to his Jewish audience. And then he uses the word explaining. Not only does it mean, reasoning mean to make plain, but explaining means to open thoroughly or to expound. Pastors are called to expound Scripture. 
And that's what he's doing. He's explaining it. And then he uses a term, giving evidence. Luke says, Paul was giving evidence. This means to place alongside. So he's making plain, he's expounding, and he's placing alongside. Now, another way that you can translate this word, giving evidence, is to set in order in building a case. It's a lawyer term. He's building his case. He's building his argument about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, now we live in a world where one theory is as good as another. Well, that's your opinion. Well, that's that's your opinion. And, And talk radio and talk television and talk shows and everybody else has made everybody's opinion on an equal level. Paul would not agree with that assumption. Paul would say some opinions don't have any validity and they need to be approached as such. Some opinions are worthless. But he reasons with them and he goes to the scriptures to reason with them. Now, we have think tanks and seminars and and people do all these things. We've got PowerPoint and everything else. But what did Paul do? Paul said, look, I want to reveal to you out of the scriptures how Christ is who he says he is and how he's the fulfillment of what Messiah is to be. And so he begins to share the gospel. Now, if you notice in Acts 17, some believed, others resisted. By the way, that's the way it always is, isn't it? Some believe, others resisted, and some felt threatened and challenged, and so they decided we'll start a riot. We'll start trouble. And so they started this riot to stop the gospel. Have you noticed that a riot will always get more headlines than revivals? I mean, let a riot break out in this town, in a neighborhood. Just let there be a couple of families fighting in a neighborhood in this town or any town in America, and it's going to be the lead story, and they're going to have a truck out there, and they're going to have the satellite dish reporting live from the incident where they started throwing fists at each other. But if you have 50 people saved in church, nobody shows up to find out what happened. Let me give you my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect about why this happened. I am convinced that secular media is designed for two kinds of people. Are you ready? People who don't think and people who don't read. I mean, just watch the news. They're going to tell you how to think. And they don't want you to explore the facts and they, they don't want you to get the truth. They want to get their interpretation. And you show me one major journalist, quote unquote, that's, that's an iffy word, on the national network that doesn't have a bias that comes into what he reports about the story. He doesn't want you to know all the story, just what he wants you to see. Now, I... I There's some language in these two books, but I'm going to recommend two books to you that you need to read. One is the book Bias by Bernard Goldberg, who used to work with CBS News, and the other one is Arrogance by Bernard Goldberg. You need to read Arrogance. It'll rattle your cage. You will probably never turn on national media again after you read Arrogance because the arrogance which which they deny their arrogance is phenomenal. I mean, just the quotes in there where they're just so arrogant to say we're not arrogant is unbelievable. And so Paul is dealing with this 
arrogance and he is attacking them. And, and look at what they say. <laughs> These men who have upset the world have come here also. Now let me ask you something. Has the church upset the world or has the church set the world right when the gospel has been received? Uh, these men have turned the world upside down. No, we're just trying to get it right side up. Isn't it amazing that if you go out and you don't wear a shirt and paint your body and they're in 17 degree weather screaming with a beer hat on your head, you're a fan. But if you come to church on Sunday night, you're a fanatic. What's wrong with this picture? These men who have turned the world upside down, why? Because their message had power in it. And the world can't stand the message with power. It either has to embrace it or reject it. There is no neutral ground in the scriptures. And Paul, reasoning with them and giving them evidence they make a complaint. These men who have upset the world, now they've moved into our neighborhood. I don't consider this a complaint. I consider it a compliment. You see, every time somebody criticizes us in this community for doing something, I consider that a compliment. It means they're not ignoring us. And they are ignoring a lot of churches in this town who are not doing anything that causes the world to pay attention. I would rather be criticized than ignored. We don't need to be ignored for what we believe and what we stand for. We need to put it out there and make people decide. You're either for it or you're against it. You either believe it or you reject it. Second thing, Paul confronts the elites. He leaves Thessalonica. He starts a great work there because we know there was a great church in Thessalonica for their faith and their, and their hope and their love, which he writes two letters to this church. And he goes to Berea, and then he moves on to Athens. Let me just give you a little background here. In Corinth, you found the commercial and political center of all of Greece. But in Athens, you found the educational center. This was the university center. This was where, Athens was where the great philosophers like Plato and Socrates and others had taught and, and done all that. In fact, almost every secular reasoning and philosophy flows in some way from Plato or Socrates or Aristotle or Sophocles or Euripides. One of those men, those key philosophers of Greek culture, one of them has basically influenced every philosophy of world system that we see today. And so Christians went, Paul went in particular, to go to Athens because in Athens, the Greek culture was established just like in Jerusalem, the Jewish culture was established. So to take the gospel to the world, Paul had to go to Athens. And so what does he do? He walks around, and I won't read all of these verses, but we're, we're about to verse 10, 11, 12, right in there. Uh, Paul goes into the city, and he does what anybody would do in Athens. What we do if we go to Athens today, he went sightseeing. Paul just went looking at the sights, seeing what the city was like. Find out if they had a Jimmy's hot dogs there. Just kind of looking. Seeing what's up, where he can buy a postcard. And while he's looking at the sites, he sees an entire city given to idolatry. Now somewhere in the margin of your Bible, you ought to write this one little thing. In Athens, there were 30,000 
gods worshipped. 30,000. One historian has says it was easier to find a god in Athens than a real man. Here was a culture dominated by paganism. And in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. That word provoked means exasperated. Paul was ticked. He was exasperated. He was provoked. He was angry within because he saw a whole culture dedicated to pursuing idolatry, 30,000 of them. Now, if you went to Athens today, if you go to Greece today and you take one of the historical tours, what you will be told is this is some of the great art of the world. We call it art. They call them gods. We call it art. Paul said it was idolatry and Here's the thing that we need to understand about art. Art, whether visual, oral, or literary, communicates emotions and values and thoughts. And it, one of the most dangerous things the Christian church did was to get out of the business of the arts. And when we got out of the arts, we turned the arts. We turned art, pictures, theater, music, over to the enemy because we thought it was worldly. And the reason it's worldly is because Christians aren't involved in it. And we gave the arts over, and you can read a number of books that are out there about what has happened to culture just because we quit being involved in the arts. You no longer have a Michelangelo who will paint the chapel of the Sistine Chapel. You don't have that anymore. Why? Because we're too withdrawn from culture to be involved in the arts. The reason theater in America today is so perverse is because Christians aren't involved in it. We don't want to be salt and light. We'd rather go and get in our little holy huddles. And we are supposed to be involved in the arts because the arts are a way that we communicate emotions and values and thoughts. And the highest art that's ever been done was done 12th and 13th and 14th century by Christian artists who depicted great scenes from the Bible or the life of Christ. Well, I chased that rabbit. I'm through with him. So Paul goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. And then he goes to the marketplace for some open-air preaching. Now, why go to the marketplace? There's two reasons why Paul went to the marketplace. Number one, that's where the people gathered. That's where the people all gathered was in the marketplace. It was the mall. It was the built-in crowd. But secondly, that's where the philosophers gathered to debate. So you went to the marketplace not just to get some eggs and bacon. You went to the marketplace to get an education. So families would take their children to the marketplace so that their children could hear these philosophers debating one another about the issues of life and the, the philosophies of life. And, and I also think Paul left the synagogue and went to the marketplace because the Jews had withdrawn from the culture. We have created in our society a whole Christian subculture where we never have to get out and touch a sinful world. And that's wrong. 
Everybody can't be in full-time Christian service. Everybody can't do... I mean, we've got to get out where people are, folks, because people need to see Jesus, and they don't see him if we're just always inside something at the church. We need to be about the business of influencing the marketplace. And if we're not careful, we will become Athenian in our approach to life. Staying in our little synagogue on our Sabbaths and worshiping while the debate on the issues of life are taking place in the marketplace. While the issues and the direction of education and politics are taking place out in the community, but we're all withdrawn in our holy huddles hoping that it doesn't get inside. It will get inside if we don't go outside. And so you have Paul in the agora, the marketplace. Now, this particular marketplace was where Socrates once debated Plato on the nature of reality. And so there's a broad background that I want to give you here because philosophers delve into mystery. Now let me just kind of describe it. I took philosophy in college as the most boring thing I ever took in my life. I mean, you, you read names of people you don't care about and they come up with ideas that are too stupid to put in print and they have books after books after books by these people. Philosophers delve into mystery and they sit down and speculate. Now, let me define philosophy for you. The philosophy is speculation that turns into philosophy. That's what it is. It's pure speculation and all of a sudden it gets defined as a philosophy. There's no valid proof, there are no valid points, and there are two groups in Athens. You need to know who these two groups are because these two groups are still with us today. First of all, the Epicureans. The Epicureans, E-P-I-C-U-R-E-A-N-S, the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans practice atheism at its worst and agnosticism at its best. The Epicureans denied God's existence. They denied life after death. They were materialists. They were scientific humanists. They had a logical explanation for everything. If you want to know their motto, their motto was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Their theme song was let's get physical. I mean, life is just in the material realm. So live your whole life in the material realm by the moment. And truth, and you'll hear this if you listen to New Age philosophy today, Truth is what you've experienced. If you've experienced it, it must be true. That's an Epicurean philosophy. It's also a philosophy of many in our culture today. And so there are the Epicureans there who, who just say kind of, let's party. By the way, this philosophy began to blossom in the 50s and 60s. I grew up in the blossoming stages that is now full flower of this philosophy. Materialism, let's get physical, let's just party, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. The whole drug culture was built on this philosophy of life. Get high, get stoned, get wild, go crazy. Then there's a second philosophy, and that's the Stoics. The Stoics were at the other extreme. They were pantheists. They believed everything is God and that he does not exist as a separate deity, but God exists in everything, trees, rocks. I mean, they were the first tree huggers. And you, know, you see these people, you know, they will walk around with a, 
an abortion sign, let women have the choice to abort a baby, and they'll all get out and go, oh, there's a whale beached on the shore. We must be concerned. Call the media. Get a helicopter. Bar no expense to save a whale. But they'll gladly applaud the woman who walks in and takes a life. The Stoics believed God was in everything, so it didn't really matter. There's nothing separate. There is no God that is above. Uh, and, and they have a lot in common with New Age and Buddhism and Eastern mysticism. But their motto was grin and bear it. Grin and bear it. They believed the body was nasty and evil. And you only discovered the truth by rigid asceticism. Their theme song would have been, let's be miserable. Ever met any of those folks? They're miserable and they want you to be miserable. And they're not happy unless you are miserable. These were the Stoics. Verse 17, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now, let's go back and summarize real quick. The Epicurean said, God is unknown. The Stoics said, God is unknowable. And so these two groups, they listen to Paul and they get kind of impressed for a moment. And so they take him to the Council of the Learned, uh, which is what we know as Mars Hill today. And the biggest obstacle Paul has to overcome is their intellectual conceit with both groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. They were intellectually conceited. Here's how they group people. There's us and them. Those of us who are educated, enlightened, the elite, the intelligent, and them. Them would have been Jews, slaves, and anybody who had not mastered the Greek language. And they called them barbarians. And so you had the us and them crowd. And, and, and again, we've got that today. I found it funny. I don't know where you are politically, and it doesn't really matter whether you are, where you are politically. If you want to get on the right side, come ask me, and I'll tell you how you need to do things. But, but I was amazed at an email that went around a number of months ago about the education level of the Hollywood stars who are critical of George Bush and the education level of his cabinet. You know, and you look at these people, and they make the Tonight Show, and they make the Today Show, and they make every, every show in the world. They ought to be on Jerry Springer because they're idiots, but they make every talk show, and they get up there and expound their wisdom. High school dropout, high school dropout, dropped out of college, flunked out of college, kicked out of college, high school dropout, high school dropout. And then you go to the people who are in charge right now, master's degree, two PhDs degree, PhD degree, master's degree. But you see, they consider themselves intellectually elite. Why? Because they told everybody they were. Now let me tell you how you know when you're intellectual. You don't have to tell everybody you are. You don't have to convince everybody. You don't have to wear your titles. And we have a whole culture that has been built around this philosophy that says everybody's a barbarian but me. And I want to tell you, it's especially true about how they feel about people in the South. They think all of us marry our cousins, ride around with our guns cocked, and shoot anything that moves. 
Can I tell you, I have walked the streets of New York and I've walked the streets of Chicago. And there are as many idiots in New York and Chicago as there are in Albany, Georgia. You get in a taxi, they can't speak English. You know, and yet, where we live in the center of the universe, said who? Since when? I mean, when you get a guy that thinks he invented the internet, and you get another guy who's Oxford educated that doesn't know what is is, who are we kidding as to who's dumb and who's smart? I want to tell you, you give me a farmer that knows God and I'll take him over a Harvard graduate any day of the week as far as having enough sense to live life. I'm not against education. I've got one. And I are proud of it. <laughs> I'm just saying these philosophers were eaten up. And look at what they do. They call Paul a babbler. Some of you think I'm a babbler. The word literally means seed picker. Now, let me tell you the background behind that word. You need to know this word. Because the next time you get mad at your television, just look at it and say, seed picker. <laughs> the background behind this word is someone who would quote Plato and had never read him. But they'd be standing around in a group saying, you know, the philosopher Plato said... But they never read Plato. Or, you know, Socrates one day expounded on this, and he said they never read Socrates. And what they were saying is Paul sounded like somebody who had just picked up on some phrases, but he wasn't really educated. They didn't know how educated Paul was. They didn't know how brilliant Paul was. And by the way, the average pastor has more education than the people in Hollywood that think they're real smart. We're not as dumb as we look. I know sometimes we look dumb, but we're not that dumb. And so these Epicureans bring him into the council of the learned, and the Stoics thought he was preaching two gospels, Jesus and the resurrection. They thought, that, oh, and here's what they thought. The Stoics thought, well, Jesus is the male God, and resurrection is the name of this new God that's a female God. And so look at what they say. They, he is a proclaimer of strange deities. We, we never heard of these deities. You see, one of the idols in Athens was the idol of thoughts. And, and so this was a thought to them, like reason was an idol, shame was an idol, virtue was an idol. And they thought that he was preaching two deities. And so Paul is rushed in, and then he gives a sermon, third point. And he takes them where they are. Look at first thing. First, he presents a God who is knowable, verses 22 and 23. A God who is knowable. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I now proclaim to you. Now, this may shock you, but if you read this sermon, Paul doesn't begin with prayer, and he doesn't begin with Scripture. He doesn't talk about the cross, and he doesn't talk about the blood. 
He takes these people where they are. You've got to remember, he's in a Greek culture. He's in the middle of philosophers who have no biblical background, who have no biblical understanding or respect for the Word of God. They probably never even heard that the Word of God existed. And he takes them where they are, and he establishes a beachhead. He tries to find something in common. I was walking around, and I noticed, boy, you are sure religious people. Well, yes, we are. And then the second thing he does, he looks for an area where they are vulnerable. Now, if you're going to share Christ in a postmodern world, you, you better find a beachhead and you better find a place where they're vulnerable. And so he looks and he finds that they're vulnerable on this unknown God. And so Paul doesn't denounce them. In fact, he pays them a compliment. I've noticed you are very religious people. Literally, he says, you're God-fearers. But the word that he uses there is not the word for God like we would use. The word that he uses there is that you worship gods that are lesser concepts than who God is. You're worshiping a God that is a lesser concept than who God really is. And so he finds this altar of the unknown God. Now let me tell you why this is significant. The altar to the unknown God is an admission that their philosophy and their religion had not found the answer. Just the very fact that they said, you know, well, we may not have covered all our bases. We better put an altar to a God we don't know or don't even know exists. It was an admission that their religion and their philosophy was inadequate. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed an altar to an unknown God. The second thing is there was a possibility, and this is important because this is way down the track of where postmodern thinking is. There was a possibility that truth existed beyond that which they had discovered. That is huge. The altar to the unknown God was a reminder to them that there may be truth out there that exists that you haven't found yet. And so I want to talk to you about the unknown God. And look at what he says. What you worship in ignorance or as unknown, I proclaim to you. Paul says, you're not sure, but I am. And so the essence of idolatry then is man's imagination. Man is trying to express his ideas about God and all of them become unworthy. And his speculation is bankrupt theologically. And so Paul says, I've got a revelation for you about the true God. And whether you have 30,000 God or 300,000 gods, they're not going to satisfy you because I want to talk about this one you don't know. Second thing he does is he presents the God who is personal. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now, by verse 24 and 25, he's appealing to the Epicureans. 
They, they liked it because God didn't need a temple. Uh, they would have liked those words. Verse 24, he makes him known that God is the maker. He's not made. In verse 25, he says God's the giver and he doesn't have any need for anything. And so God's not looking for anything from man. He's the giver and he's given his son. That's where he's leading them to. The Stoics would have loved him when he quoted the poets. They would have loved that. He says, as your own poets have said, they would have loved him that they think God is some kind of cosmic energy that permeates everything. But what Paul is doing is he's actually teaching theology to them while he's complimenting them. Here's what he's doing. He's saying God is both separate and close. He is holy, but he is also approachable. And so in verse 26, he made from one man every nation. That cut their pride. Remember, there's us and there's everybody else. They're the elite, the Greeks, the philosophers, and then they're the barbarians. Paul said, uh, by the way, just in case you think you're better than somebody else, all of you philosophers who are listening to me right now, just in case you think you're better than everybody else, we've all come from one man. We all came from the same seed. We're all children of Adam. Now, he doesn't quote Genesis here, but you see Genesis in this sermon. One race means originating from one source. Now, we look different. We have different pigments. We have different features. We have different statures, but we're all homo sapiens, and homo sapiens doesn't have anything to do with homosexual. We're all homo sapiens. From one man, we all came. And so he, he deals with their pride, and he says God's not a Greek, and he's not an African, and he's not an American, he's not white, he's not Asian, he's not Indian. He, he, is, he is a God that is God so that you might seek him, all of us together. The God whom you ignorantly worship is a God you can intimately know. And so he begins to push the envelope and their preconceived ideas. And then finally, he presents a God who makes demands. He's personal, he's knowable, but he also makes demands, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's no more speculation. Now there's been revelation. God's put up with, he's ignored your ignorance, but you're not ignorant anymore. And so I want you to see what Paul does. First of all, he says there's an inescapable day. An inescapable day. He says there's a fixed day. By the way, that's the day toward which all humanity is moving. And nobody can stop it. There's a fixed day when Jesus is going to come and everything's going to be over. There's a fixed day in the economy of God when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's a fixed day in the economy of God when there's going to be a judgment. There's a fixed day in the economy of God when everything will be sealed and permanent and nothing will change after that point. Nobody can get saved after that point. There's a fixed day. But not only that, he says there's an unchallenged standard, a fixed standard. The standard doesn't float. The standard doesn't change. The Word of God is true today just like it was true 2,000 years ago. 
It hasn't changed because some denominations and, and some preachers say, well, you know, we, we need to be tolerant and we need to be open. And we Listen, God didn't say this word is true until you decide it's not. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrinal proof, correction, and training in righteousness until the 21st century and then believe what you want to. That's not what it says. No man's ever gotten smart enough to decide that he can change what God says. And so he has an unchangeable standard by which people are going to be judged. The standard is not mine or yours. The standard is not the church or denomination. The standard is the word of God and the holiness of God and the man. A fixed day that he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. That's not going to change. There are no appeals courts. You don't get to get another lawyer. You don't get to call the guy that's defending everybody on TV right now and say, hey, would you be my lawyer? Because he can't get you out of where you're headed if you're going in the wrong direction. And then he says there's a perfect judge, a fixed person, who will either condemn or acquit. Now, this phrase is important. The time of ignorance is over. Paul says in the book of Romans that there's coming a day when we will be without excuse. No man, no woman will stand before God and say, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. I didn't have a chance. There's coming a day when we will be without excuse. The day of opinions and philosophies is over. The day of ignorance is over. The resurrection has rendered every philosophy of life obsolete. Except the Christian worldview. And so he says the time is now to repent. Now did you notice? John the Baptist started with the Jews by saying repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus started his ministry by saying repent. But Paul, when he gets to Athens, doesn't begin with repentance, but he sure ends up there. Paul says, in light of what you've now heard, in this learned environment, with all these philosophies and all these idols around you, I pro proclaim to you that the day of ignorance is over and you must repent. It pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Verse 32, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Look at the response. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. There are three responses to the gospel. Some sneer. Sneering and mocking at the gospel is always a reaction of the pride of man. When confronted with the truth that God requires us to humble ourselves before him and admit that we're sinners, the pride of man will sneer and mock. And when people don't have a comeback for the word of God, you know what they do? They ridicule. If I don't have anything intelligent to say, if I can't put up an intelligent argument, I'll just ridicule the messenger. And that's exactly what they did with Paul. They ridiculed the messenger. Others delayed. I need to think about this for a while. This is new to me. I was saying to somebody last week, you know, our, our job in evangelism is not to always close the deal, but it is always to plant the seed. Because sometimes people need some time to think about it. Sometimes they're not ready. 
They may be ready six months from now. They may be ready tomorrow. They may be ready in two hours. They may not be ready right when we're talking to them, but our job is to plant seed and to be faithful. And we should never feel like failures if somebody doesn't get saved just because we've shared the gospel with them. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. It's our job to tell them that they need Christ. It's God's job to save them. My job is just to be faithful to the gospel. And then others believe. Now if you'd stand to your feet, I want to make a closing statement. Our responsibility is not to change people. That's God's responsibility. Our responsibility is to know our Bibles well enough and to be able to understand what this word says to such an extent that when we share the gospel with people, they can believe or disbelieve intelligently so that when we walk away from them, the day of ignorance is over. They know enough to either start pursuing God or to walk away and reject Him. Our job is not to make them make a decision. Our job is to give them the Word of God and to say to them, this is the Word of God. You are no longer ignorant and your blood is not on my hands. You have heard from my lips to your ears what you need to do to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What you do with it is now between you and God because you have heard. You will not stand before God one day and plead ignorance. I didn't know because now you know and you know what you need to do. And now the word is not ignorance. The word is repent. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.